Our text is the gospel lesson just read from Matthew 25. Very famous, well-known parable of the sheep and the goats. It is another Advent parable. Culminating in the coming of the king. And of course, instructing us on what to do as we look and long and wait for that Advent appearing of Christ. Now I think, in our tradition, in Reformed tradition... We often have a rewritten alternative parable in our heads. A rewritten alternative parable floating around in our heads. It goes something like this. Jesus assembled all the segments of his church before his glorious throne. Eternal destinies were determined by whether the Christians in question had fed the hungry and gave drink to the thirsty, welcomed strangers, clothed the naked, visited the sick and the imprisoned. Those who had done so entered into heavenly bliss, and those who had not were sent away into eternal fire. And when the king called the Reformed Church to appear before him, he asked for an account of their deeds toward, of mercy toward the least of these. And they answered, saying, Lord, You know that visiting prisoners and ministering to the poor are not among our spiritual gifts. Our doctrine, however, is impeccable. And surely, as you know, Lord, we are saved by faith and not by works. Look with mercy on our lack of concern for the poor. Save us by your righteousness alone. Then we imagine Jesus saying, You alone have spoken truly. Surely I have not seen such insight among all the tribes of Christendom. You shall enter into the kingdom prepared for the elect before the foundation of the world by faith alone. And if you could throw in an occasional act of charity on the way, that would really be nice. Now, this alternative reading, which I suggest is in the heads of lots of people. This alternative reading, to be fair, raises some legitimate concerns. Right? It's not intended, really, to be wholly humorous. Right? So I want to state for the record, up front, that we are saved by faith alone and not by works. The Bible asserts this repeatedly. Works are not the basis or the meritorious ground of our salvation. But rather than try and untangle that whole thing here, I want you to see this. It's very important to remember this. In the parables, actually in his teaching ministry in general, but especially in the parables, Jesus is not trying to say everything that can be said about a given topic in a balanced way. Right? You know, trying to qualify this here and nuance that there. He is like a prophet. And like the prophets, he's usually emphasizing one thing. And he tends to try and do it as provocatively as he can. And it's important for us to remember that. Because if we're always kind of saying, oh yes, but remember this too, and remember that too, we can blunt the sharp edge of the one pole of divine revelation that we actually need to hear. So, we must let a text like this, we we cannot get out in front of this text. We have to get under this text and let it speak its unnerving truth to us. And it is unnerving. 
And it certainly is going to call into question that little alternative parable that's running around in your head. So we're going to look at it under three headings. They're there in your bulletin. Uh, The king, the least of these, and the judgment. So first, the king. This text is traditionally used for Christ the King Sunday, which is actually the, the last Sunday right before Advent. It's a Christ the King text. Think about that. It reminds us that to confess, as we do in our tradition especially, the sovereignty of Christ is to confess that we will stand before this throne and that we'll be judged by this criteria. Right? There's so much talk about the sovereignty of God in our tradition, but so little of it actually links the confession of that sovereignty to actual concrete corporal deeds of mercy to the poor. But it's right here on the face of this text. To confess this Christ as king is to say we will stand before this throne and be judged by this criteria. And it's a stunning thing at the opening of the parable that it is Jesus, the Son of Man, who comes in glory as king. And that the angelic hosts of God, the cherubim and the seraphim, are attendants of his throne. In fact, the throne itself, the throne itself is his glorious throne. And so, what has happened here? Jesus has, as he is wont to do, taken all of this Old Testament imagery that is attributed to Yahweh in the Old Testament, Yahweh as the enthroned judge of all the earth in the midst of his angelic host and placed himself right in the throne as Yahweh. So among other things, the text is making a vivid, forceful claim that Jesus is God, that he takes up the divine prerogatives of the king. He is the Lord on the day of the Lord. Notice how the text says, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Of course, now he sits on his throne, but then it will be fully manifest. He rules the world now by word, by sacrament, by providence. But he will sit and administer direct, immediate, irrevocable judgment on this day. Right? He rules the world now in a preliminary way, in an anticipatory way, in a way which is often inscrutable to us. His judgments are in all the earth, But we can't figure them out. They won't be inscrutable on this day. This is not going to be a day of inscrutable judgment. It's not going to be a day when people are thinking, I wonder what the Lord is doing through the pandemic. Maybe he's doing this. It's not going to be that day. This is the judge coming into the courtroom, getting up into the seat, sitting on the throne, meaning now I'm going to administer the judgment, which to this point has been administered in an anticipatory way. So he assumes the throne here. It's important to see that. And notice in verse 32, all the nations, Jews and Gentiles, are gathered. He summons all the nations for the judgment. Past, present, future. Right? And since our Lord Jesus is king, and the kings are also shepherds, like a shepherd, he separates the sheep from the goats. The text tells us that's what he does. Nations are gathered, people are separated. He will gather the nations and he will separate people. So this is a judgment then 
on individual persons, as individuals. This is not a judgment on nations as nations. There's going to be sheep and goats here from every particular nation. There are not sheep nations and goat nations. There are sheep and goats from the nations. That's what the scene is. The sheep are placed on the right. The place of honor. And the goats, they're placed on the left, which is here, a place of disgrace. Even though the word used later for the goats' place on the left is well spoken of. They appear to be righteous, perhaps. So the king then is ready to pronounce judgment. To administer a series of rectifying judgments that will set the world right. So this brings us to the second point, very crucial for understanding what's going on here. And that is the least of these. Right? To, to whom are we speaking of when we speak of these acts of charity being done? Or these acts of charity being omitted? Right? Verse 40 speaks of the least of these, my brothers. And in verse 45, it says the least of these. My brothers is omitted there, but it's clearly implied by the the parallelism of the whole text. So this is an important question was, who are these, the least of these, my brothers? It might surprise you to know that the dominant view is that this refers to any human being in need. Right. And that's what Jesus is teaching here, that at the final judgment, what will be in view is our response to human need. Period. Human need. Now, I think that's a correct idea. It's an idea with plenty of biblical support. You could think of uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan, for example. But it's not the point in this text. Here, the least of these, my brothers, is surely Christians in need. In the words of Galatians 6, we're to do good to all men, but especially to the household of the faith. I'm going to take just a minute to confirm this because I think it helps focus the point of the sermon better. So a couple things to notice in Matthew's gospel. First, in Jesus' teaching ministry in general, but especially in Matthew, the word brothers always refers to disciples. Who is my mother and my brother? Whoever does the will of God, they are my mother and my brother. Secondly, this phrase, the least of these, it reflects our Lord's concern throughout the Gospel of Matthew for those whom he calls his little ones, right? Little ones. Least of these is a superlative form of little ones. So, for example, in uh, in Matthew 18, Jesus makes the following statements. He says, now here he's speaking of children of the covenant. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, Notice that in the text. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it will be better for him to have a millstone around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. He says, see that you don't despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their father in heaven, right? The angel, their angel beholds the face of their father in heaven. So the little ones are Jesus' children. They're among the least of these, his brothers, Now, all of these ideas are brought together in Matthew 10 in a text that's very important parallel text to this parable. There, Jesus says this. Whoever gives one of these little ones, 
even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple. Truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So the least of these are brethren, brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. It helps kind of focus the text from just a generalized concern for, you know, seeking the social welfare of the common good, which is, as I said, fine. But this text is focused somewhere else. Right? This text is to say, if you fail to show charity to Jesus' brothers, right, it is a failure to show it to Christ himself. Right? To withdraw or to distance or to close our hearts off from members of the body of Christ in need is to reject Christ himself. So we could speak, we could speak of a solidarity between Christ and all people, but what's in view here is the deep, intense, covenantal solidarity that Jesus has with his flock, with his body, with the church. Right? It's that solidarity. Right? That solidarity is why the risen Christ can say to Saul, right, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I am afflicted in the afflictions of my people. I am imprisoned in the imprisonments of my people. I bleed in the bleeding sufferings of my people. So the least of these, then, is the body of Christ, here and scattered around the world. And that brings me to the the third point, which is the judgment itself. So notice that the sheep are called here in verse 34. You know, for all of the... uh, familiarity we have with this parable, it strikes me that there, the, the thing is full of surprises. This is one right here. They're called blessed of my father. And that's a very strong word. It means they've received grace or favor. They have a relationship with the father. They are summoned here to inherit. Inherit is an eschatological word. They are summoned to inherit the kingdom prepared for them from when? From all eternity. From the foundation of the world. This is the language used in the New Testament of election. There's election at the front end of this judgment scene. The fact, the text echoes Ephesians 1 very strongly. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. Right? They're called blessed of the Father. Paul says the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So you have this election from all eternity spoken over the sheep. Nevertheless, the judgment is in a real way according to works. Right? You see that in the word for. This word F-O-R, for, in verse 35 and in verse 42. For means this is the reason. This is the reason for the destiny in view. The sheep gave food and drink to Jesus in his brothers. They welcomed him when he was a stranger. They clothed him when he was naked. They visited him when he was sick and in prison. The goats did not, did not do these things. They didn't do it. It's, and it's not a minor oversight. It's a grievous failure which leads one to the eternal fire. Notice that these corporal deeds of mercy, they require presence. Right? Two of them, I mean, almost all of them have to be done face to face. You have to visit. Now, I know the world is complicated, and I'm not rendering any definitive judgments, but let me tell you in complicated situations, all the texts have to be heard. And when you have 
elite people and hospital administrators deciding that no one who's dying can be visited. What they are deciding is that Jesus himself has to die alone. Right? right. That, that Jesus himself, you know, many of the people, are going to be the brothers and sisters of Jesus. Right? And, to, and, and they are to be visited in their distress. God will sort this out on the last day. The goats did not do these things, right? And, it, and it's not a minor error. Again, we're not saved by our works, but notice this, you're not going to be saved without them. At the very least, we say that, right? In fact, we have to say more than that. You'll be damned without them, this text says. Without holiness, and holiness here means this, right? Visiting orphans and widows in their distress. Holiness means concrete corporal deeds of mercy. Without it, no one will see the Lord. So think of it this way. This is my own very imperfect parable on the situation. You have two sons in your house, right? And you say to them, if you do not clean up your rooms, you cannot come to dinner and eat. Now, strictly speaking, you know it is not the cleaning up of their room which gives them a right of access to your table. It's the fact that they're sons in your house. That's the ultimate ground of their right to eat at your table. That reality sort of corresponds to justification. Justification makes us children of God. It gives us a legal title to eat at the wedding supper of the Lamb. But, and this is key, to be justified by faith alone Always, in every instance, no exceptions, is always accompanied by renovation, by sanctification and good works. So, you walk into your first son's room, and as sons are wont to do, he has cleaned his room. In itself, the cleaning job leaves a lot to be desired. Right? He's not, he's not good at it. Cheryl always tells me, don't clean up anything while I'm gone. I'm like, why? You're no good at it. That's why. I, I, I have to redo it when I get home anyway. So th- this son has tried to clean the room up. He's, he's made an effort. You know, some stuff is picked up. And since he's your son, freely justified, if you will, with some real but defective evidence of renovation, you receive both him and his defective works, in your mercy, you invite him to the table for dinner. The works are not the ground. They're not the basis of his right to eat. But nevertheless, they're necessary. They're necessary under the house rules as evidence of his sonship. No clean room, no dinner. No clean room, no dinner. Every parent's had a kid up in their messy room until 9 o'clock at night, right? No clean room, no dinner. So you go into your second son's room, and his room's in a shambles. You ask him why it's not clean. He ignores you. He tells you to deal with it or whatever he does. He isn't invited to the table. Now, if this was his consistent behavior, if he was persistent in the absence of any good works, it would show that he was never justified, that he was illegitimate, that he's repudiating the claim to be your son. No clean room, no dinner. Again, the works are not the basis, but they're absolutely necessary. Jesus is not telling parables here for the fun of it 
or, or as some sort of object lesson to teach righteousness you know, by faith alone. So, the same grace then, which adopted you and made you a child, is the grace which taught our hearts to fear, as Amazing Grace puts it. That grace leads us home. And the way home for us is the way of charity. Charity especially to the least of these. Right? In the context of this text, the absence of this, the absence of practical, costly charity for the suffering members of the church is a sign, think of this, of rejecting Jesus himself. I mean, we might think of it as just kind of an omission. Well, I, I, I don't get around much to, to deeds of charity. Don't think much about the poor or prisoners. Jesus says, that's a direct repudiation or rejection of me. Uh, uh, the people, the goats here are not hostile. They're not like, we're against poor, uh, uh, feeding the poor. Let them pull themselves up by their bootstrap. No, they just don't get around to it. So this is about encountering and ministering to Christ himself or neglecting and thus, by implication, rejecting Jesus. Notice one further thing here. The damned go into this eternal fire and it's not prepared for them. It's prepared for the devil and his angels. And the sheep, the blessed of the Father, right? they're saved because the Father has prepared a kingdom from them from the foundation of the world. It's a picture of the fact that while Christ the King administers both blessings and curses, his heart is for salvation. Right? There's a priority here in God's desire to save and to bless the sheep are saved by the Father's eternal good pleasure. The goats are cursed because of their own sins in this text. And here's another surprising feature in the text. Notice this. I think you can see this in verse 37 and then down in 44. Both the sheep and the goats are surprised. This is actually Uh, led some people to criticize the parable. How in the world could they be surprised? Notice this. Neither group is surprised at their fate. They're surprised at the reason for their fate. They're surprised at how precisely they had shown or failed to show charity to Jesus. When do we do this, Lord? Or when do we not do this, Lord? They're puzzled. Look, this, this is a literary device, right, to sort of drive home the point, right, that what we do or do not do to the suffering brethren, we do or do not do to Jesus. They are surprised, so you won't be surprised. Jesus tells the parable this way, so we can prepare for this, this evaluation of our love for Christ. So, I want to to close by pointing out what by now I hope is obvious, but when everything is said and done, and it's it's not, of of this topic, the writing of books are endless, right? When everything is said and done that can be said and done about faith and works, the fact remains these works are required at the judgment. And that's a thing we need to hear, right? Reformed people have a tendency to filter this out. So we, we, you know, this text is coming for this. These works are required at the judgment. And it's surely correct to say that they're evidence that we're saved, not the cause of our salvation. But we can't take refuge in that as if somehow we we don't have to find ways to demonstrate this kind of Advent charity in the world. The text tells us 
that when the king holds court, a good part of what's going to be examined is open public evidence. Right? Yes, it's true. Jesus will examine every careless word and the secrets of our hearts and all of those things. But what's in view in this text is the open public evidence about concrete corporal deeds of mercies, and these will be decisive in rendering a judgment on our destiny. No clean room, no dinner. So, you know, this, this alternative parable that I started with, that's floating around in some heads, needs to be edited. So it goes like this. The reform stood before the king and said, Lord, we know that we are saved by grace and not on the basis of works. Yet we know, Lord, that salvation being all of your grace demands all of our lives. We know that free righteousness is always wrought out in lives of concrete obedience. We know that you will judge our faith according to our works and that without providing evidence to your court, we will not be saved on the last day. So we have labored, Lord, by your grace, to love you in your poor, in your naked, in your hungry, in your imprisoned, and in your sick brethren. We have fed you, O Lord. We have visited you in prison. We have welcomed you in the stranger. We have clothed you when naked. You know, throughout the pandemic... We've been providing food. Our deacons have done a good job on this, providing food for this food bank back here. You can donate. The food bank's right at the, right at the end of the street. You can feed the hungry. Over the last couple of Sundays, we collected clothes so you can clothe the naked for the Hope Home in the Bronx. Don't let these opportunities go by. Right? These are not just optional extras for believers. These are at the heart of what it means to love Jesus. So we want to say that on the last day of the Lord, we have done these things. And we want to hear the king say to us, come, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. So, in the meantime, we stand under this coming judgment, this coming crisis. Advent, as we said, is the permanent season for the church. Three parables in a row now. This is the third Sunday of Advent. You'll notice all these parables, are they're, they're sequential. They're back to back to back in Matthew chapter 25. They're all focused on us living lives that will endure, that will survive the fire of the coming day of God. Oil in our lamps. Talents deployed for the kingdom. And here, charity to the least of the saints. This is why Advent, which is a season of expectation and hope, is always also a season of repentance and renewal. Jesus has given us time, the time we need, Advent time, the time of grace, the day of salvation, the time of repentance, this time, when this judgment is held in abeyance, this time. Use this time wisely. And the way to use it wisely is you have to go out to Jesus in his suffering. Put it this way. The coming Advent, which we are waiting for and which we expect, has already occurred in Jesus Christ. And I don't mean just in the incarnation. It is always present right here in your brothers and sisters in the room. 
Jesus moves incognito among us, especially among the poor and among the needy and among the marginalized. Because that's the kind of royalty and king he is. It's a stooping royalty. Jesus is present incognito, but we have to stoop to see him. He who has... Who, who did not regard his equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, right? has stooped down, and now we have to stoop down to find him. He is present, incognito in the least of these. I'm going to leave you with this Advent question then. How are you treating him? How are you treating him? Amen.